We are continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Very important. Uh, the best sermon ever preached because it's Jesus. And so we're picking up with Matthew chapter 7. We'll get through half of it today. If you want to open your Bibles and follow along, I'll read it to you. Uh, but you can follow along with that. You can follow along with your notes. Um, as you pull your notes out, you'll notice at the top, I've given you kind of an, an outline summary review of the things that we've already covered so that it's really easy for you to go back and reference those. We're talking about the eight values that Jesus started with that we have to build in our lives. We covered the five internal enemies of those eight values, things in our flesh that we have to fight. We talked about the five practices that will cultivate and build those eight values into our life. And then we talked about the one demonic attack that every single one of us will face, anxiety, worry, fear. You guys remember all that? Okay, good, because I want to build on it today. What we're going to do in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is going to cover what I am calling the five people guidelines. We need guidelines from Jesus to interact with people because, and this is going to stun you, people are usually the problem. Just saying. Uh, not exempting myself even. I'm a people too. People are usually the problem. Now, I've read Ephesians 6, 12. I know that we don't battle against people. I know we don't battle against flesh and blood. I know we battle against principalities and powers, which is one of the reasons we need to be praying because those principalities and powers use people and our fallen flesh, right? Guys, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you have accidentally been used by a principality or power at some point in your life? But we all have. Uh, because we believe lies, and we have to correct that. And so people are the problem. Thank God there are some rules we can follow that if we follow these, our interactions with people will be a lot better. How many of you could use better interactions with people? Especially some of them people in your house, maybe even. Some of them little people. It's all good. Okay, so let's start. The first rule we're going to get in verses 1 through 6. Now, this, by the way, is the unbeliever's memory verse. Uh, people who aren't Christians and don't know the Bible know the first two words of John 7, judge not. Uh, you can, you know, so we probably learned that one before we were even saved, uh, but it may not mean what they think it means. It may not mean what you think it means, so let's make sure we understand. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, ouch. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's seeing clearly, it's, you know, keep that in your pocket. That's important. You want to see clearly. Um, and then verse 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. That one seems a little bit like a non sequitur, but we'll explain it when we get there. Okay, so 
Don't judge. Don't judge people. Now, we need to understand, I need to play a little bit with the word judge here. I know I don't do this a whole lot, but um, uh, I'm going to try and keep this as simple as possible, but we need to make a distinction. For example, uh, in your notes, I have 1 Corinthians 2.15, where Paul says, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. So Paul is not saying, don't judge until you get really, really, really spiritual. Then you get to judge everybody, and no one can judge you. Now, I know some people have thought that's what that says, uh, but that's not what that says. There is a distinction here. and To understand that, we have to look at the Greek a little bit. And the word judgment uh, in Matthew 7 is krino. And then you see, for example, in uh, the 1 Corinthians 2.15 passage, it's anacrino, so it's built off that, but it's different. There's diacrino, all that. Bottom line is, um, using the different words and the context, it basically falls into two categories. Now, it's not perfect, uh, but, and, you know, theologians will argue, but it basically falls into two categories. A final uh, judge, kind of like what a judge does when he puts the gavel down and goes, here's my ruling, a final judgment, uh, here's the deal, this guy's guilty or this guy's innocent or whatever. Uh, that would be the crino, uh, and that would be the one in Matthew 7, and then the one in 1 Corinthians 2.15 and the crino is more an examination. I'm weighing these things. I'm examining them. And so uh, what's going on here, again, to keep it as simple as possible, is what he's saying is don't make condemnations or final judgments. The other verse is saying, we judge everything. We discern everything. We evaluate everything against the Spirit of God and against Scripture. But we don't make final judgments on people. That's the distinction. And so uh, the way that works out is um, I can, for example, I can listen to some teacher online and go, that's bad doctrine. Uh, that guy misunderstood that passage in Scripture, and he taught it badly. And I'm not in trouble with God. Until I cross a line where I go, that's a bad guy. That's a false prophet. That's a false teacher. Do you understand the line I just crossed? I went from examining the doctrine, which is okay. And by the way, you should do that every time I open the Bible. You should examine what I say against the Word of God. That's a correct judgment. That's an examination. But I've crossed a line when I begin to judge that guy's heart and make a final verdict. That guy's not saved. That guy, that guy didn't know Jesus. That guy's a false teacher. Uh, no one should go to that guy's church, right? Now, if he's, you know... Uh, teaching another gospel, I might say no one should go to that guy's church. But you understand where I'm at here. What Jesus is saying in this don't judge thing is, uh, guys, don't condemn one another. You aren't allowed to judge other people in that way. We, we discern things. We examine things. Uh, we, we look into all that. We're called to do that. We all have the Holy Spirit of God in us to do that. We all have the scriptures as a template to lay things against but we don't determine people's hearts. And it's so easy to cross that line 
And again, I don't know how many times I've said this lately, but it's, it's super easy to do it online against a guy or a gal you have never even met. And yet, you've made a heart judgment. That is a problem with God. That is getting us in trouble in Matthew 7, 1. Okay? <clears throat> now, let me give you a couple other verses. I just want to spend some time on this judgment thing because uh, it might just be me. I might just be in picky, but I feel like the church could possibly do a whole lot better on this. Anybody with me? All right. So, uh, let's just us try and do better. All right. Now, Paul talks about uh, this in a couple other places, so we will too. In Romans 14, 4, Paul says, Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. What's the implication there? Whose servant is it? God's. How many of you parents are real comfortable with me coming up to you and going, hey, I'm going to, your kid's acting up. You haven't done anything about it. I'm going to take him in the back room and discipline him. How many of you just go, sure? Right? That might be a problem. Not your kid. Not my kid. You think God has a problem? We go, hey, God, you probably haven't noticed that one of your kids is being a jerk. Uh, you haven't done anything about it, so I'm going to. Think about it, don't we? God has nothing about it. I'm going to make something happen. This guy needs to be punished. Wow, that might be scary. Who are you to judge another servant? So we don't judge people simply because they are his. I don't get to judge his servants. Any questions? Now, again, I can examine them. I can look for fruit. I can examine their doctrine. I don't get to make final judgments on them. That's not my servant. And I don't know how it's going to end. He says God is able to make him stand. He might look a lot better a year from now than he does now. And I don't know that. God does. I don't know what God's doing in his life. Right? Guys, we got to get this. This is basic stuff. Okay. So there is an exception, though. Who are you to judge another servant? The implication being I get to judge Someone who's my servant. Now, let's use the word servant a little bit loosely here. So, uh, for example, if you're a parent and you have children, they're under your authority. You actually have a responsibility to make judgments uh, and even to execute discipline, right? I, as a pastor, have a responsibility in some places to make judgments and even execute discipline. Now, that authority is limited to church on the rock. I don't get to do it for the whole church and the earth, right? Sounds like a simple concept. There's a lot of people who want to extend their authority places they don't have any business extending it. Just saying. So, the exception is when I actually have authority and with that responsibility to make judgments. And I say that because a lot of times, people want to have authority but not be responsible, I find, and they go together. You can't have one without the other. If you're going to exercise authority, you're going to be responsible to God for how you exercise that authority. I don't know about you, that makes me nervous because he's real picky uh, about his kids and about how we love them. And so uh, here's what I do. I have three verses 
that guide me when I am forced to exercise authority and make judgments regarding people. And this might just be two people that are in conflict and they're sitting in my office, you know, and I have to try and help them resolve it. Or someone who's got an issue and I have to confront it, that kind of thing. Here's my guidelines. The first one is John 7, 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. I don't get to just take a glance at it and go, well, here's what that looks like. That's illegal. It's specifically forbidden by Jesus in John chapter 7. Don't just judge by appearance. Make a righteous judgment. For me to make a righteous judgment, I'm going to have to do a little work. I'm going to have to ask some questions, learn some stuff, do a little research, right? And then where it's regarding conflict with people, and trust me, I have done this wrong. The reason I've memorized these verses is because of how many times I, you know, got bit by that dog. Did it wrong, listened to one person, thought I had it figured out, listened to another person and went, huh, maybe I don't have it figured out. You know there's scripture for that? Matthew 18, 13 says, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. So one i got to sit down and hear this person before I make a judgment. And here's the kicker. A few verses later, Proverbs 18, verse 17. Um, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. I have done that. I've thought, man, you're, you're right. You are right. Let's get that person in here. And they come in here, and I get them both in the same room. And, and I go, whoa. Now I'm getting a different story. Now the neighbor that has examined him is the neighbor he has conflict with. And now the truth comes out. So much so that I have uh, sort of made it standard policy that I don't do conflict resolution without the people in conflict in the same room, unless there's a real good reason. Because uh, you're not going to get anywhere. I'm not going to do go hear this story, then go hear this story, then go hear this. I need to see them talk to each other. And then I go, oh, I think I'm starting to see what's going on. All right? Verse 1, to please his cause seems right till his neighbor comes and examines him. So the bottom line is, when I have to execute judgments, I want to be very careful because I know I'm, I've been given that authority. And, I'm, and it's the same with you guys as parents or bosses or whatever. And I'm responsible to God for how I execute those judgments. I'm responsible for how I execute that authority. And that scares me. The reason it scares me, oh, wait a minute, before I say that, uh, the one thing about John 7 in Proverbs 18, 13, and 17 is it requires proximity. I cannot, one, I'm only allowed to execute judgments and people I have authority over, and two, I can't do it unless I talk to them. So, if you hear me clearly, if you are executing judgments on people you've read about online that don't even live in the same state or country as you and you've never met them, you have no proximity, no ability to judge with any, by anything except appearance. You've not heard them. You've not heard their neighbor examine them. You should probably just leave that alone. You hear me? And this is serious stuff to God. Here's why this scares me. Because of the warning in verse 2. For with, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Here's what I hear. I hear, Tony, I've given you authority over Church on the Rock. You're going to have to make some judgments. But you should be careful because however you do it, I'm going to do it with you. Yep. Think that works for parents too? Yeah. Now, again, we can't make it let us shirk our responsibility. But you just need to be serious about doing it God's way. We really want to be careful. And so what I want to do is make sure that my judgments are fueled by mercy and gentleness. Check this out. Galatians 6.1, some of you may know this verse. It says, if a brother is caught in a sin, so this might happen somewhere in the earth, some brother or sister might be caught in a sin. It says, you which are spiritual, correct that brother, tell him to repent right now and get his act together. Did I quote the wrong verse? You guys know what it says? It says, you who are spiritual, you who understand, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. What's the goal? We, we think that we're supposed to be, that it's somehow spiritual to be the sin police and to go point out sin, and it makes us more spiritual to... to be able to identify where people are sinning. That's not spiritual. You know what's spiritual? Restoring them in the spirit of meekness. That's what God says is spiritual. And humility, by the way, because it says consider yourself lest you also be tempted. So we have to see that the whole purpose of this authority to make judgments is restorative. It is restorative. It is only restorative. Got to get this, guys. Now, we see this principle in 1 Corinthians 11. This is in the context of them taking communion and judging one another in the midst of it, and bad things are happening. And Paul says this. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32, for if we would judge ourselves, and by here he means examine. It's a, it's a you know, examine ourselves context. If we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. If we'd examine ourselves, God wouldn't have to fix stuff that we're not willing to look at. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Did you see that? God, when he does enter into judgment with us, why? Why is he doing it? Is he mad? Is he punishing us? No. He's trying to prevent a greater judgment. He's trying to uh, judge us now to get us to repent so that he doesn't have to pronounce a final judgment on us that is very, very bad. You see it right there in Scripture? Here's what I want you to see. Can I get around this? The only purpose for what I'm going to call pre-final judgment, there's that, there will be a final judgment. We all know that, right? And there's no coming back from that. The only purpose for a pre-final judgment is redemptive, period. There is no other reason. Not because you're worried that they're going to get away with sin and people aren't going to know that they did it and blah, blah, blah. Jesus, when he judges before the final time, it is so that we aren't condemned. It is to bring us to repentance. The only reason for making judgments in people under our authority is to bring them to repentance, is restorative, is redemptive, period. It is not punishment. The moment we've begun to feel like someone needs to be punished, we are absolutely in the wrong spirit. 
you understand. Got to get this. This is not rocket science. Okay. Now, we see this, in fact, in verses 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't consider the plank in your own eye? I would submit to you that the speck in the brother's eye in this context is probably some outward visible sin. And the plank in our own eye in this one is probably a heart issue. I'm just saying. Uh, Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The goal here is redemption, isn't it? It's, bro, I want to try and help you get rid of that speck in your eye. In order to be able to see clearly to do that, I've got to make sure I've dealt with all my planks, right? So that I can see clearly, so I can actually be helpful to you. And so we're not just pointing out sin because we're sin police. We have to be redemptive, restorative. We see it right here. We, our goal, our desire has to be to remove the speck. And speck might be an indication of how big a deal it is to God, even though you think it's a massive thing, right? It might be a speck to God because consider what he sees. So note that there is a prerequisite in verse 5. First, remove the plank from your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The prerequisite is self-examination. And it's, again, everything we're seeing in Sermon on the Mount, it's a heart self-examination. Not, it's not just, well, if I'm going to correct this brother on this sin, i got to make sure I'm not doing that sin. Okay, it's been a couple weeks, I haven't, I'm good. I can correct him. No, no, no. He's saying, before you deal with the speck of whatever his issue is, you deal with the plank, the massive heart issue that you have. So here's what that looks like. Here's how you examine yourself. Uh, If I were, for example, going to go speck removing, right, here's where I want my heart posture to be. You will note that all the things I'm going to list here Uh, fall under those eight values uh, and five practices that we talked about earlier. First, I would go, hey, heart, am I doing this as a a hunger for righteousness? Am I really wanting to restore this guy to righteousness? Or do I just, I'm tired of him being arrogant and I want to see him, you know, get shut up? Right? They're both valid goals, just one of them is not godly. Am I going in humility? Am I going gently, knowing that, uh, you know, but for the grace of God, go I? Am I going with a heart of mercy? Am I going to serve this guy, not just to correct him, not just out of some religious duty, but because I want to help him. I want to serve him. I want to see him do better and get rid of the speck. If my heart examination comes up negative on several of those, I maybe should postpone my speck hunting. Until I'm done deplanking. <laughs> you with me? Again, it's right there, black and white. But we don't think deeply about these things sometimes and we don't get this. And so judgment is a big deal. And again, we don't cross that line where we begin to judge people's hearts and condemn. We're just trying to help people do better. And I'm only, thank God, it's enough that I have to deal 
with the responsibility of a church. I don't want to deal with the responsibility of the church. Uh, I don't want to have to correct people I don't know. And I can't because I don't know them. Right? By the way, where it says, remove the speck from your brother's eye, that implies some relationship. Right? This is a relational thing. Uh, If you are a visitor here today and you've noticed a speck in someone's eye already, you might want to build some relationship with them before you go after that speck. It's just a relational thing, right? Maybe we don't try and take specks out of people's eye that we haven't spent the time to build a relationship with, haven't become a brother first. Just saying. So that leads us to the warning in verse 6. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, here's what I think that means. I think some people like their speck, like their sin, and you try and remove it, it'll make them angry. They want to keep their speck. So this is what I call unauthorized eye poking. (laughs) You decide you're going to help someone with a speck in their eye, and you've even gone to the trouble of examining your own heart and removed all the planks, and you go poking at their eye, and they like their speck. What are they going to do? They're going to bite you. You're, you're casting pearls before swine. You're taking what is holy and giving it to dogs. You're trying to bring them into a biblical lifestyle that they don't want to embrace. And now I'm not saying you don't witness to people and encourage people and all that, but you go start correcting them, and they don't want to be corrected. They might bite you. And so, again, we don't need to be the sin police. All you got to do is be responsible uh, for those under your authority, and when, when God either reveals it or gives you opportunity, uh, remove specs with a plankless heart. That's it. Can you do it? All right. It's tougher than it sounds, isn't it? Paul recognized how difficult this is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, I love this passage. He says this. Stay with me on this. This is good. Paul says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. I don't really care. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Now, we know Paul already told us to examine ourselves, so we know he's examining himself. What he's not doing is rendering a final judgment even about himself because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. He's not even competent making a judgment about himself. He says, for I know nothing against myself. That is, I've examined myself, and I'm not aware of any sin issues that I need to repent of, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. You hear what he's saying? I've examined myself. I don't see any issues, but God might. There might be issues I'm not aware of. I'm not justified just because I can't find anything. God might find some stuff because God's looking on a level that we may not always see. Catch this. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. That's the time for final judgments when Jesus comes. And Jesus is the only one capable of making those judgments. Why? 
who will bring both who who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart then each one's praise will be from God right the counsels of the heart that's what God's looking at that's where the planks are and so Paul's saying look I don't even judge myself I mean I examine myself I think I'm doing pretty good but God is going to reveal all the counsels of my heart. I'm not sure what's in there. I'm just doing the best I can. And so with that, the point is all of our judgments, even our judgments of ourselves, are flawed. So let's not be super confident in our ability to make final judgments. Make sense? Let's give a little grace. Let's not judge when we don't have to. You don't have to say everything we think. We don't have to comment on every issue that goes by your social media thing. You can just let them go sometimes. All right? Feel like that's enough? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, bottom line, we examine everything. Uh, we don't judge people. We don't judge their hearts. All right? When we only discipline people that are under our authority. And uh, I love that he says also that we're rightly judged by no one, which is going back to that thing at the end. Only God can really judge us. So I don't worry a whole lot about other people's judgments about me. I worry about God's judgment about me. Now, they might have some insight that will help me, but ultimately, God's the one whose judgment I care about, and you should too. Right? Okay, good. Let's go on to the next one. Maybe this will be less painful. Um, prayer. So uh, the first practice regarding people is don't judge people. The second practice is prayer. And what we're going to see here, give me a minute and I'll show it to you, is he's not just talking about prayer in general. He's talking about prayer in the context of our relationships with one another. I submit to you that you will not be successful in having relationships with other humans without prayer. It is essential. And you're not just praying for them. We're praying for us. I'm praying for me so that I can have relations with other people. Let me show you. So he says, uh, picking up at verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. What man is there among you? Who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, you ready? Very simply, he's talking about prayer. And he, he, he says, ask, seek, knock. This speaks of three things. Ask, be specific. Don't just pray the Lord's Prayer and I'm done. Be specific. What do you need? What's the issue? What's the problem? Seek. That speaks of intimacy. We're not just praying. We're not just dropping off a list at God's office. We're building intimacy with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as we pray. So we're being specific. We're building intimacy. And knock, this makes me think of persistence right? And I refer you, we're not going to go there, we've already looked at it, the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, 
or she just kept knocking. And God used that as a parable to teach us to be persistent. So we're to pray specifically, intimately, and persistently. Now, here's the interesting thing. He goes from that, because I keep telling you this is about people. This is not just about prayer in general. He goes from that to verse 12, which is what we call the golden rule. Do whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This will encompass all the law and the prophets. Love people. So he's not talking about praying just generally for stuff. In fact, we just saw uh, in the previous chapter in uh, Matthew 6, verse 25, it said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. And then in verse 33, it said, uh, the Lord knows you need all these things, but seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. How many of you believe one chapter later he's talking about praying for stuff? He's not talking about praying for stuff. He's talking about praying for the ability to live a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle with flawed people. That's what he's talking about praying. That's what he's talking about, ask, seek, knock. I'll show you. In uh, Luke 11, I usually, when I quote this verse, the ask, seek, knock verse, I usually go to Luke 11 and not Matthew 7 because it has one difference. It's identical. It's the exact same story, except at the end where this one says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give good things to those who ask? In Luke 11, it says, if you then being evil know how to give gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? What are we supposed to be asking? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. The eight values. What he's saying, what I think is going on in this passage, he's going... I think they hit the wall, honestly, because every time I've taught this, I told you at some point people look at me and go, this is impossible. I think Jesus is looking at the crowd, Sermon on the Mount, and he goes, yeah, they hit the wall. They're all looking at each other going, we can't do this. And he goes, I know you can't, but if you'll ask me, if you'll seek, if you'll knock, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. Be specific. Ask me for humility. Ask me for gentleness. Ask me for grace to be merciful. Keep asking me for the things you need in your relationships with other people. And then you can do the golden rule. I know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I can't do that, God. Yes, you can. Ask me. I'll help you. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. I'll give you the eight values. That's what we're praying about. I don't want you to ever look at ask, seek, knock again any other way. It's... It's asking for these eight values in our hearts so that we can remove our planks so that we can relate with other people, so that we can do the golden rule. It's saying, ask, seek, knock, so that you can do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You're going to need my help. You're going to need to ask for my spirit. You're going to need my grace to be gentle and merciful and patient and all those things. Is this making sense? I don't think I'm reaching here. I think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's talking about stuff. I think he's talking about his spirit and the fruit of his spirit. And so I want to encourage us. Ask, seek, knock. Come on, God. I'm still knocking. I could be gentler. Come on, God. I'm still asking for humility. Come on, God. I'm still asking for the ability to fear you. And not fear men. Come on, God, you got to help me. 
I'm asking for the ability to live this Sermon on the Mount thing. You said ask. This is real hard. All right. Good? Third one. Two more verses. He goes from this to enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And again, we're talking about a rule for dealing with people. Many people, the crowd, or the few, the people that are going through the narrow gate. How do we deal with them? So I think this is just as kind of, we've already kind of covered this. I think this is a call to fear God versus the fear of man. Uh, one of the, I forget which one, one of the you shared it. Uh, I think it was Noel about going with the crowd. God told her, uh, quit worrying about what the crowd thinks. I want you to worry about what I think. That's this. He could have just said, uh, don't take the wide gate. I want you to choose the narrow gate. Don't worry about where the crowd's going. You go with me. Sermon on the Mount is narrow. Sermon on the Mount is narrow. Right? Now, what I want you to see here is this is tying us back into the eighth value, the fear of God. Remember, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, spoken against. We talked about how when we choose the fear of God to do it God's way, people are going to persecute us and speak against us. That's what this passage is saying. In fact, uh, the word translated difficult, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way. In the Greek, it's probably better translated afflicted. Narrow is the gate and afflicted is the way. So you go to the first gate, and it's, it's real wide, and there's a big crowd, and it says, no one will bother you. You go to the second gate, and it's narrow, and there's not very many people, and it says, as soon as you go through this gate, people are going to pick on you. You're going to be afflicted. And you've got to pick which gate. Jesus is recommending the narrow one, right? And this is what we were promised. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who, who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The moment you decide I'm going to choose to pursue a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, someone is going to afflict you. Somewhere down the road, someone's going to persecute you because they're not going to like it, because you're not going with the world. If the world hated Jesus, they will hate you, right? We just got to sign up for that. We just got to get this. And, you know, uh, Peter says it this way. Why are you surprised uh, that, that uh, this fiery trial that's trying you? Why are you surprised that the world hates you? Why are you surprised that the gate is narrow and there's affliction? Why are you surprised? Didn't Jesus tell us this is what was going to happen? Don't be surprised. Just choose. So he's warning us not to compromise his narrow Sermon on the Mount ways for the sake of peace, for the sake of the crowd, for the sake of not rocking the boat, for the sake of not being afflicted. I just get along with be afflicted. Now, I want you to know this can go either way. Uh, this can be when you're saying, hey, we ought to show this guy mercy, and the world's yelling, no, 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 this guy needs to be punished. Sometimes it's the other way around. You're going, no, it's not love to tell this person that's okay. That's wrong. That's going to hurt them. That's a that's a speck in their eye. We should try to remove that. And the world goes, no, no, no. Love is love. Let them go. Right? It can go either way. 
And so it's narrow. And it's narrow based on the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's saying, don't take the wide gate. Don't compromise the narrow way just because it's afflictive, just because it's more peaceful that way, because it doesn't end well. And uh, I want you to think about this. As a, you know, we usually we started out talking about judgment, and, you know, people get offended, uh, all that good stuff. People get offended when they're judged. You judge me, and blah, 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 and did we do it right, and all that. But Stuart, uh, interestingly, he was here today. He's, uh, this is a comment was from him. He made this observation, and I thought it was brilliant. He said, uh, he has found that people are more often offended at God's mercy than at his judgments. And I went, you know what? That's true. People get a little bit offended at God judging something. They don't get offended if God judges people they think are bad people. But God lets somebody off the hook. God forgives somebody. God shows somebody mercy that they think should be punished. Ooh, they get bent. We wouldn't do that, right? We don't get offended at God showing mercy to people that absolutely deserve a spanking. Do we? Just a thought. How are we doing? Amen. Well, let's do that. Let's do help us, Lord. Let's have the band up. we got about five or eight minutes here. And let's just do this. Let's end with this. Says, ask, seek, knock. And we just learned that that's regarding him giving us his spirit and the values of his spirit, the character of his spirit, the fruit of his spirit. So let's just go back into worship and let's do that. Let's just go, God, yeah, this looks good. This is hard. Give us this, God. Maybe if he brings something specific to mind, you go ahead and deal with that. We'll just take a, we'll just do a song or two. It won't be too long. But uh, this is a good time to ask him for his Holy Spirit, right? All right. I want to pray. Well, you told us that because you were good, we should expect good from you. And we should ask, we should seek, we should knock for your Holy Spirit. So we do. We ask you, Holy Spirit, come fill us. We ask you, Holy Spirit, come conform us to the likeness of Christ. Holy Spirit, we invite you in a fresh way into this room and into our hearts and say, yes, we want to be like Jesus. We want you to build these eight values in our lives. We recognize that we can't even get along with people without you. Come help us. Come help us. Holy Spirit, please come help us.